all these fancy doodads, they changed the microphones on us. All I had to do before is just flick it real quick. And All right. Well, it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews. So we're going to get started and we're going to go back a little bit. Um, I was really excited. I thought, boy, I'm going to get finished early because I only had three pages of notes. Because normally I have about five or so. And then I realized I didn't have it in big font, so you're in trouble again. In Hebrews chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse number 9. We'll actually be studying from verse 11 through 18, try to finish chapter 2 tonight. But just to get us back up to speed and get our minds in, in what he's been saying here and what we've talked about before, let's look in verse number 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into, unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them which are tempted. Father, have your way in each one of our hearts tonight as we study this passage. And Lord, that we honor you with what we learn, that we might put these things to our hearts and our, and our practice in our daily lives, that it might encourage us, it might challenge us. And Lord, we might feel secure knowing who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, bless us now in this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What has he done? That's the title of this. Uh, I had about 14 different titles, but I come up, finally finished with that. Just what has he done? As you look through all of this, we'll start in verse 11. He sanctified us. Now, in a lot of churches, that's a dirty word, because sanctified means separation. He separated us. He set us apart. He set us aside for him, for himself, for his use. 
So Paul here is continuing to make his case just like a lawyer. As you go through and, the, and the, we keep going chapter by chapter, he's simply building a case. He's talking to three different groups of people, those that are believers, they're Hebrews. He's not writing this to the church, to the Christian church. He's writing it to the Hebrews, to the Jews. And so you have those that are believers. You have some that may be believers, but they're kind of sitting on the fence. They're, they're thinking about going back because of the persecution and, and, and the shunning and all of the things that the Hebrews would do to them. And then you've got those that are just out and out. I'm not, I'm not into this stuff. I'm not a Christian. They were put in, gone into exile when everybody was, was chased out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. If you have a wife that's not saved and, and you're saved, they persecute you, she's going with you. And the same thing with your children and stuff. So you have all three different groups that he's addressing and trying to encourage, trying to challenge them, trying to show them that some need salvation but really get them solid in the face so they can withstand all this persecution and things that they're going through. So he's building his case here, and he's showing what did he actually do. Well, he sanctified them in verse 11. For he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, he is talking about Jesus, and he sanctified. He set, he set Jesus apart. God set Jesus apart here. Just like when we got saved, he continues, they who are sanctified, he has set us apart. That's why we should be different from the world. Not a bunch of crazies and not run around a burlap sack or nothing like that, you know. But we're supposed to be different in our attitude and our speech, the way we go about things, our joy. There's so many things that we can cover here. But we should be different because he has taken us out of the world and placed us into the body of Christ, as we'll see later on. So he said, they who are sanctified, that we, same thing that he talked about in verse number 10, those sons brought unto glory, those that were saved, the believers, they're all of one. They're all of one, he says. Now, Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus and the sons brought into glory. He says the same thing there. Uh, they have the same father. Jesus has a father we call God, God the Father. He called him father all the time. He prayed to father. He said, not my will, but the Father's will. We have the same Father, and we should honor him the same way, and we should come to him the same way. And because we both have the same Father, he says, we should, we should understand that unity that we have with, with the Son. This, this tremendous idea that we are children of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And these children, he says, 
in verse 14, Ephesians 2, he said, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. It's just like in a marriage when we get married. Uh, we walked in that church, two different individuals. But because it is holy matrimony, God is the one that is taking part in our ceremony. And he takes two people and right before your very eyes does one of the greatest miracles in mankind. He makes two people one flesh. You don't see it. It's not sleight of hand. It's only something that God can do. And when he made us one flesh as husband and wife, it's the same thing. When we got saved, we are in that same family. God is our father, just like Jesus Christ is our father. And we are all of one. Now, he said he's not ashamed because we have the same father. He's, under, he's gone through the same things that we have gone through and are going through, he stands unashamed with us and for us. And we the same way should be willing to stand for him unashamed and with him. When, when the Bible says in second, or it, was it 1 John 5, 17, I think it is, he says, as he is, so are we in this world. The same things that Jesus loves, we should love. The same things that Jesus hates, we ought to hate. And there's that likeness. We're supposed to be Christ-like. And he says he is not ashamed to call us brethren because we have that same Father. The word brethren here is showing that relationship that we have through that incarnation, through the genealogy, He's talking again, remember, about the Jews. And he's referring to them. He said, we have that same genealogy. We are kinsmen. We have that Jewish heritage, he said. Now, in verse number 12, he said, he declared the Father. What did he do? He declared the Father. Notice he says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. This has really messed a lot of people up. I have heard so many different messages than, that showed me that the people didn't study before they got up and opened their mouth. He said, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. He said, well, the, the church has started at Pentecost, so he's talking about he's going to pray, you know, praise the Lord in the congregation or in the church. No. This is a quote from Psalms 22, verse 22. He quotes the Old Testament that is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come, and he was going to declare him. He was going to declare the Father to the Jewish people. Let them know who he was. And so doing, he would be declaring himself the Messiah. That's why he says in Hebrews 1 and, and verse number 1, 
He said he hath spoken unto us. How? By his son. He made that announcement. It means to make an announcement. To do that, he had to become flesh. He had to become a man. It's one thing for an angel to announce God. It's another thing for God himself to speak from heaven. And, and they would think maybe it was a thunder or something. But for the son to declare him, he had to become flesh. And that's what this whole passage is going to, to culminate in here. Remember, he says, unto my brethren, the Jewish people, then we come to the passage, that, or the part of the verse that really confuses people, and it says the church. He's going to declare him in the, in the church. The church is not talking about a church as you and I know it. The church, the word is ecclesia. It's a compound word. Ek means out. And then the ecclesia is that called I called so they are the called out it can be used of th four different ways in the New Testament here let's just run through a few of them to kind of get you an idea and a little teaching about the church itself it means an assembly of people with no special theological meaning it can refer to Israel as a gathered people in the wilderness, you find that in Acts chapter 7, or an assembly of citizens. They were just having a meeting. They were lost. They weren't Christians. They were just simply having a meeting. And you find that in Acts 19. Or a group uh, or a congregation of people, and that's what you find here in this verse, in verse number 12. The second way it's translated, it's an assembly of Christians in a local church in various verses where he talks about the local body. But this will kind of blow some of your minds, I hope not. But uh, in, in local churches, there are lost people. You see that in the book of Revelation when he writes to the different churches. And he says, you have people in there that, that, are, that are lost, they're teaching heresy, they're destroying the church, but he uses the same term that they are in that local body and yet they are not saved. The church at Laodicea, they wouldn't have known God if he'd have walked into their church. They were singing songs, they were singing hymns, they were preaching supposedly the word of God, yet God said, uh, I was at the door knocking and you didn't even know who I was. You, you wouldn't have known if I'd have come in. You weren't anywhere around. Just because somebody is in a local church does not mean they're saved. Okay? But there are another term where it's used, the third way of Christians without reference to locality. It is in a general sense when he refers to the church, that you are baptized into that church, into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, they are all saved. And in reference to that, he uses that phrase in reference to the church. When we talk about the church, 
We're not talking necessarily about the, the local building or the people. We're talking about God's church throughout all the world. You say, well, there's just one church. Well, that's, I got a problem there because uh, I, I've got 13 of them over there in Africa that would dif disagree with you. They're still a part of the church. So it's that com or, or compilation of all the saved believers and that reference, that's part of the church. So there's different ways that the church can be used or the word ecclesia here. And so at this point, it's an Old Testament passage where he's talking about, and the word itself is congregation. The term is a congregation. You have a group of people that are meeting. Israel was a group of people. And he would come and he would declare the Father to those people to that congregation, the Jewish people. So that's why they've used the term church here. It does not refer to a local church. It does not refer to the church as a whole of, of baptized believers. It refers to a congregation of people, the Jewish people here. The church, Christian church started at Pentecost, and I could go for hours proving that to you. But Jesus declared it, the Father, rather, to Israel. In John chapter 1, in verse number 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But yet, in verse number 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the who? Jew first and also to the Greek. He came first to declare the Father to the Jewish people. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that he has sent to you. And as he declared them, he gives several other passages. John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The only begotten Son declared that God was his Father. In verse number 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. He claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be the very Son of God. He was there declaring all of this to Israel. In John 17, verse 26, he said, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. So the rest of Scripture bears out what he's saying in this passage here. As the Messiah, he's come to Israel first to declare the Father that he is the Son of God. And God the Father has sent him. The scriptures bear this same thing out all the way through. Then in verse number 13, he says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. As a man, always remember, you have 100% God 
and 100% man in the same person of Jesus Christ. And as a man, he put his trust in the Father. He submitted willfully to the Father. And he says, what my Father says, that's what I'm going to do. That's why as a man, Jesus and those that had put their faith in, in Christ and had submitted to, to the Father, they also trust and, and believe what the Father has said and what he's doing. And so Paul is building this case, showing them who he is, showing them why he's come, and again, understanding that it, this is to the Jew here. The third thing I see in verse number 14, he destroyed the devil's dominion. Notice I said the dominion. He did not destroy the devil. He does not say he's going to destroy the devil. Okay? Now watch this closely. He says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The term for as much here is a conclusion of a supposition here, that is because man was flesh and blood, then it was necessary that he become flesh and blood too. And for that reason, he says, well, why? that through death there must be death. You and I deserve to die. Not just spiritually, physically. We, we deserve to die and go to hell if we got what we, we rightly deserve. But he said, I am taking your place. And because of that, I have to die. Listen to me. God can't die. So how's he going to take our place if he can't die? He has to become man. And that's what all this is, this is about here. That through death, so he could die, he became man. The punishment of man's sin is death. Romans 5.12, whereas by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Death is required for our sins. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That throws this, not Campbellism, what is it? Uh, Calvinism throws it right out the window. He, his death was for everyone, not just for a, a certain few. I was reading a commentary today, going back and studying my notes, and a commentator that I have great respect for, very famous commentator, uh, he's Calvinist. Because as he goes down through here, he, he says every man, but then he says, but, 
But really, it doesn't mean every man. It means just, I turned to my wife. I was so mad I wanted to spit. <laughs> I said, what? why do we do that? Why? How can somebody be so intelligent and be so dumb at the same time? When he read the words, every man. What's every man mean? Every man. But how do you twist that and say, well, it doesn't really mean every man? I, I don't know about you, but I'm just going to believe the Bible. Amen? Jesus is the propitiation. He took my place. He was my substitute and yours. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That God would become a man and come to this earth and suffer and die in my place. In my place. He said the reason is because you are going to die and spend eternity in hell. And he said, I must taste death for you. What a Savior. The only payment accepted by God is blood. Blood. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it unto you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are purged by the, or by the law, purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no blood in these religions. You come back here and, and, and you check and see if there's any blood in that, in that baptistry. It's not. There's no blood in, in that little communion cup. Without the shedding of blood, that's that death he's talking about, there is no remission. That's why Jesus had to come and be born in a stable. That's why he had to take upon himself flesh so that he could suffer, he could shed his blood to pay for our sins so that our sins could be remitted. Now there's some ceremonies, ceremonial impurities that, that you might wash away with water or with fire. But the stain of sin can only be removed by blood. No other way. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He talks about destroying here. The word destroy is not like we think uh, of the word destroy. It means to make to cease. To make to deceive. It does not mean to kill. It does not mean to annihilate. You, you, you make it stop or you make it powerless or you make it ineffective. He came to destroy. He came to make Satan. He made the devil ineffective. That, that power that he has, and we'll talk about that, the word power here. A lot of times when you hear preachers and they talk about the word dunamis, 
which is dynamite. That's where we get our word dynamite from. Dunamis, that's power. It's translated power. There's another word in the Greek called uh, asuthia. Asuthia means power. It's translated power, but it means authority. He said, all power is given unto me. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. But that's not the word used here when he says he, he's taken this power. This power is the word kratos. It means dominion. Dominion. Satan cannot kill unless God allows it. That's why Job, he said, you can touch him, but you cannot take his life. Satan could not do any more than God allowed. But Satan introduced and was the cause of death. There was no death until Satan came in and tempted Eve. And, and now from that point, Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, now you have death. Satan was the cause of that death. He's a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning, the Bible says. He continues to tempt. He continues to accuse man. This is his dominion. This is his territory. But thank God. I love this verse. I wanted to shout and run the aisles when I first saw this years ago. In Romans chapter 6, I want you to look there. It is so, so important you see this. Romans chapter 6. And you ought to get a hold of it. I mean, memorize it. Get it, get it down in your heart. Romans chapter 6. Actually, the whole chapter, but <laughs> we'll just hold in on one verse. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Now listen to me. Satan's dominion is all of the darkness. It's all of the wickedness. It's, it's, it's everywhere. But when you get saved, you don't have to sin. I'm not teaching sinless perfection because none of us are going to ever, ever do it perfect. But you don't have to sin. Why? Because he destroyed the power, the dominion of Satan. And he says, now sin does not have dominion over you. You're a child of God. You're, you're, you're the, in the family of God now. And he has broken that bondage. Satan, his power, his dominion has been destroyed. For you're not under the law, but under grace. When you get saved, you're under grace. When you're, when you're lost, you're under the law. Simple as that. If you're under the law, if you're trying to keep the commandments, do all the ceremonies and all of this, you are under the law and you're under Satan's dominion. And that's why he has heydays in churches and everything else. Because they're still under the dominion of Satan. 
But thank God through the death of Jesus Christ, he has broke those bonds. He has, he has destroyed the dominion of, of the devil. And now sin does not have dominion over you. Now, number four. Where's that clock? I got a clock back there. I better look at my watch here. Oh, we got all day. Number four, he delivered the believer. What did he do? He delivered the believer. Look in verse number, number 15. He, the word and, don't forget that word, and. He didn't just destroy the dominion of the devil. That's not where he stopped. He said, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He delivered them. You see God's will here for man. He wants to deliver us. I, all the time we used to go by churches, deliverance church or deliverance meeting. They don't have a clue. He's not talking about what they're talking about. They're wanting to be healed. They're wanting to have miracles and all this. That's not what he talked about at all. He said, I'm going to deliver you from what? He says, from fear of death. He says, I want to set you free. I want to release you from your bondage. Fear binds. Fear imprisons. It works in our minds. It works in our hearts. And as, if we're fearful... We'll never do nothing for God. We'll be scared of our shadow. 1 John 4, 18 says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. You having a problem with fear? Fall in love with Jesus. Get close to him. See how much he loved you. If he, if he would do all of what he's talked about, if he would come down from heaven to be born in a stable and to suffer and die and shed his blood on that cross of Calvary, don't you think he's concerned about your little problem? You say, well, it's a big problem. Don't you think he's concerned about your big problem? I mean, he's almighty God. And, and he didn't just... Get us saved and then just turn us loose to find our own way. He has released us from this fear, this bondage, the fear of death. The fear of death, the horror, the, the, the sorrow, the terror. You and I know what it's like. It, the sub, we're subject to bondage. Why do you think everybody's going to the gym all the time? So they can get better looking? Until Thanksgiving, and now Christmas, glory. No, they're scared of dying. They want to stay in good health because they're afraid to die. The diets, the workouts, the doctor visits, good night. I remember my mama took me to the doctor one time. She really did because we cut off my finger, and they had to find somebody to sew it on. We didn't run the doctor all the time. 
I mean, now everybody, as soon as they get a little sniffle, got to go to the doctor. Why? Because we're afraid of death. We're afraid we're going to get sick. We're afraid we're not going to recover. And we live in fear of death. We really do. You, you think about what motivates you and why you do and don't do certain things. We have a fear of death. We're subject to bondage of the fear of death. But once we get saved, you know, <laughs> I was always scared to die before I got saved. You say, well, you want to die? I'm not going to cut in line. God ha God's going to flip a switch when it's time. That's up to him, not me. But now I don't have to worry because when I die, when I close my eyes, I'm being heaven with Jesus. John R. Rife said when somebody was, I think he was in Chicago and a guy was going to rob him with knife point or something and, and he said, what are you going to do? Threaten me with heaven? Now I know that's a little extreme, but John R. Rife was a little bit extreme. You can't threaten a Christian like that. Why? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Nobody wants the pain and suffering in death. Nobody wants to go through the cancer and the suffering and, and, and the heart attack and all of that. None, none of us are looking forward to that. But we don't have to fear death. Why? Because not only did he destroy the dominion of Satan and showed us now that we, sin doesn't have dominion over us any longer. He has freed us from the bondage of the fear of death. We don't have to fear dying because we know where we're going. We know where we're going. Man in the past had great fear of death. Today, because of the denial of a future life uh, after death, and the rejection of God, many have a flippant attitude towards death. All the movies, all the video games and stuff like this, death, you know, they, they've just glorified it almost. And kids have lost their fear of God. But the author of Hebrews, when he saw this, he saw the judgment after death. Because he says in Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. The judgment is coming when we die. And as Christians, we go to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus. Yes, there will be a judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And we want to we do right, so we're, we're going to stand at that judgment uh, and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We don't have to fear death. What do we fear in death? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. He said he's released us from that dominion of sin. And the strength of sin is the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to fear death any longer, believers. 
No one wants to feel the pain of death. But we don't have to fear what's after death. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In verse number 16, he took the seed of Abraham. He said, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, that promised seed. The Jews understood the promise of Abraham's seed. He said in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee of a great nation and will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise of the Messiah, the promise of the kingdom, they understood, and that's why Paul was, was repeating and rehearsing these things with the Jews. They understood why he said, I must shut off my phone. It's off. It really is. Every Everything that God has said in here, he's, he's promised before, and Paul is reverting this, regurgitating this back to them because they're familiar with these passages. They're familiar with the Old Testament and what it says. They're familiar with the promises of the Messiah. And he's building his case, and he's saying, look, this, this is who I am. And this is why I did what I have done. In verse number 17, he said, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be made a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sin of the people. In every way, he said, it behooved him. It was necessary. It's not just something that was thrown in there. It was absolutely necessary that he become a man. To be made like unto his brethren, the Jews, proving the case to the Jews is what he's trying to do here. He said, merciful, being compassionate, being able to, to pity Someone, because you've been through it. You understand what he's going through. And he said the high priest needed to understand those things. And Jesus became that high priest. And he said, for me to understand you, to, to be able to show you that I understand what you're going through, he said, I had to become a man so that I could be merciful and faithful, he says, that he might be qualified to perform all of the duties of the high priest, those functions. You see the purpose here, to make reconciliation for sin. There's no other way that he could bring two parties back together, man and the Father, to bring us together through Jesus Christ that favorable graciousness. And he said it's for sin. 
it's not, I visit people in the hospital and have for years, and, and you, you talk to people about their salvation. You say, well, when did you get saved? And somebody said, well, I was in the hospital, and, and, and I got healed. And No, he didn't come to heal you. He come to save you from your sin. He come to reconcile you. It's not a feel good. It's not, it's not just a healing. It's not just making you wealthy or giving you a position. It's saving you from your sin because you realize I am a sinner and I am separated from a holy God. And God sent his son to be that substitute. And if I will receive him as my substitute, as my savior, he said, I can have eternal life. And then lastly, in verse 18, he suffered so he could help. He suffered so he could help. He says, for in, in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted He's able to function as that high priest. He's able to function as that savior. He withstood the suffering. He knows our suffering. He knows our human frailty. He knows our emotional drains and, and when we're just stressed to the limit. He withstood the temptation. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted in all points like as we. So now as our high priest, as we bring our, our petition to him, he knows how to deal with it. He knows that he can help us. He can succor us. He will be able to help us, and he understands, and give us victory. He is able. And that's why when we get to chapter 4, and verse number 16, it says, Let us therefore... Because of all of what he's been saying in these chapters, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and, and find grace to help in time of need. I don't care what you're going through. Some of you are going through some physical problems. Serious stuff. Some financial, some just there, there's real difficulties in your, in your life, maybe your marriage or whatever. I don't care what it is. He knows what it's all about. And as your high priest, if, if you will come to him, he's making intercession for you. You say, well, I just don't know what to ask for. He does. He said he'll intercede for us with words that cannot be uttered. We just don't know what to say. But God, we're just going to fall at your feet and say, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to take it. I want to encourage you tonight. He has done all of these things. What has he done? He's set us aside. We're his child. We're sons of God. He's done all of these things. He's, he's knocked the power out of the devil. He's taken away the fear of death. He suffered so that he knows what we're going through. And if we will come to him, he'll give us the peace that passeth all understanding. God's a good fixer, amen? He loves us. 
and he wants to help us. And he said, I suffered so that I could help you. I died for you so that I could save you. Instead of trying to work it out on your own, why don't you bring it to him? Let him take care of it. Father, help us to trust in him. Help us to rejoice in him. Help us to rest in him. Lord, as we come to you boldly to the throne of grace, we might find mercy. Lord, we're guilty. We are guilty. We deserve what we get. But Lord, if we can come to you and that you will be gracious unto us, you said you will meet our needs and help us in these times. God bless us now. Lord, help each one, whatever's in their hearts. Lord, there's difficulties. We're a needy people. But Lord, we don't have to fear because we know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother, why don't you come?